0: I want to invite you to turn over with me to the book of Nehemiah. As many of you know, we are working through a year-long Bible reading plan together as a church family and I am preaching through that, primarily preaching through the Old Testament this year around. And next year we hope to shift and focus on the New Testament. If you haven't gotten one of the Bible reading plans, you can pick one up. It looks like this. And there's plenty on the back table over here where the lamp is in the corner of the sanctuary. And this past few weeks, we have read through the story of Nehemiah. I'm going to call as just a slight audible here and read Nehemiah chapter 1 rather than out of the previous listed verse that I think is on the screen. Yeah, Nehemiah 2. I'm going to read Nehemiah 1 instead. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are seated, we do have Kingdom Kids today, so if we have any kiddos who are four years old through second grade, they can meet right over here with our Kingdom Kids workers. Uh, my wife, Miss Marsha, will be walking them over to our Christian Life Center right next door. It's a two-story metal building. It's actually where we're going to have our fellowship meal after the service today. And just to reiterate what, what uh, Miss Rosemary said, all of you are invited, member, non-member, first-time guest, been around for a while. Want to sit in a business meeting or don't want to sit into a business meeting? Come and eat with us. I'll let you know when that business meeting gets started. So if you need to go, you can. But if you're a member, of course, we would hope that you'd stick around for that. And then after service today, that's where the kiddos can be picked up next door in our fellowship hall or in our Christian Life Center. Uh, As I've already mentioned, we are walking through the Old Testament together and I'm going to do, I'm going to attempt to do something that is challenging, which is to cover a whole book of the Bible in one sermon. And in fact, I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to to really attempt to do that. I'm just going to try to cover about the first six chapters. There's a lot that happens after the first six chapters. You have read it if you're on the Bible reading plan. if you're not on the Bible reading plan, I would highly encourage you to jump in on that. Maybe you already have a plan that you're doing, and that's great. No problem. But on Sundays, I do preach from some section or large sections, as I'm doing today, from our previous week's reading. And that reading, this uh, plan, is really built around... Uh, first time, if you've never read through the Bible on your own, it's really simple because it's just three chapters a day. It's one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and one from Psalms or Proverbs. We're cycling through those, which, of course, if you know, both of those are found in the Old Testament. But that's, that's the reading plan. That's how we have it lined up. I encourage you to pick one of these up from the back and read along with us if you don't already have a Bible reading plan. Let me kind of give you what I think is the big idea out of the first six chapters of Nehemiah. Then we'll pray and then we'll dive in, Okay. Kind of the big idea is that God has given Nehemiah an incredible uh, job to do. And I think the way we can look at this is God has given us an incredible job to do. I believe that. Every one of us, that God has given us important work to do. And there's a way in which we can engage in that work that we be pleasing to the Lord. And while we're engaging in the work of God to please Him, we should expect That it won't be easy. So if I could say in a nutshell, what's this sermon about? It's about that. It's about doing the big stuff for God in a way that pleases God. While dealing with the opposition that may come our way. I think that's the story of Nehemiah. I think that's our story as well. And I think God has some stuff to show us in this incredible book. So let's pray and dive in. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word. God, that you have inspired men to write the scriptures, that we might receive them as words from you. God, we thank you that they are perfect in being able to explain to us how you would call us to behave in the world and what you would call us to believe about you and ourselves and the world we live in. So God, we want to take seriously that you have something to say to us today. You want to speak to us. You know about our lives. You know about what every single person in here walked in worrying about, dreaming about, fearful of. You know You know our unique joys and our heartaches. And you care for us. And if nothing else is received today, I pray through the Holy Spirit, you just impress that upon us. You know us and you love us. And God, we know you do because you gave us your son, Jesus. That in him we might have life and life to the full. Full life here on earth and a full life in eternity. For that we give thanks and pray that your Holy Spirit would speak. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those who may not be super familiar with the Old Testament, let me just say I kind of fit in that category. I'm really enjoying preaching through the Old Testament because it's really helping me learn more and more about it. I've sat in classes and I've read it several times and all that kind of stuff. But something about doing this deep study has been really beneficial to me. And so I'm just really enjoying preaching through the Old Testament books. And if you've been with us, you kind of know the situation we're in. God has called one man to represent himself to the world, Abraham. From that one man, a family becomes a nation. And out of that nation, God will bring about redemption through one of their seeds, Jesus himself. And so we know that's kind of where it's going, but in the middle of it, it doesn't look so great, kind of like in some situations in our life. We know God's got a great plan and a great future, but in the moment, man, it feels a little messy, and that's where they're at. God's people, as you heard in Nehemiah's prayer, they have been unfaithful. What's the response of God when they were unfaithful? He did exactly what he said he would do. The... The uh, nation of Israel is split into the northern and the southern kingdom. Eventually the northern kingdom because they have no good kings. They're 0 for 20 when it comes to kings. They were all evil. God allowed other people, other nations to overtake them. And then the same thing happens to the southern kingdom known as Judah. Has it, uh, they had a few more good kings than Israel. So they were able to hang in there a little bit longer. And they're a little bit more faithful. But eventually the, their decisions to reject God... Mean that God has to discipline them in love. And so he allows the southern kingdom to also be overtaken. And what these, what would happen first in the northern kingdom with Babylon and then in the southern kingdom with Assyria and now they're under Persian rule, but we'll get to that in just a minute. What has taken place is, is some of their best and brightest has been taken from their homeland and they've been scattered throughout the known world. And now we see that some of them are coming back to Israel specifically they're coming back to judah and jerusalem and the southern kingdom a remnant is returning back home this has already taken place if you remember we talked about this when we went through the book of ezra and the book of ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple the temple had been destroyed by nebuchadnezzar who was one of the babylon uh, babylonian he was actually in fact the greatest babylonian king in the history of of babylonia and he came and he sacked Jerusalem. He destroyed the city walls. He destroyed the temple. He overtook the people and took people out. If you if you recall the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Bendigo, all that's coming out of this, this incredible event that takes place in 586 B.C. Now, they're under not Babylonian rule, not Assyrian rule, but now they're under Persian rule. And under the Persian kings, they allow people to start coming back to rebuild Jerusalem. And one of the reasons is because Uh, If you can imagine some geography with me for a moment. But you've got the Persian kingdom over here, and it's enormous. And you've got the Egyptian kingdom over here. What is in between the Persian kingdom and the Egyptian kingdom? Judah. What was known as Israel when we think of it now. It's it's that that, uh, not only was it important for commercial use, because that's how people got back and forth and traded and all that. But it was also very important for security. So they wanted to have a strong presence and a strong rule in the area of Judah. And so they were favorable to people going back and rebuilding Judah so that they would have cities fortified and people would be you know, more willing to follow the Persian rule. Because look, Persia sent us back. They supplied us with what we needed. We've rebuilt the temple. Everything is is going better than it was. It's not great. God's people are still under Persian rule, but it's going better than it was. And so the hope was that Persia would not only fortify the area against the Egyptians, but they would also have some goodwill with the people who live there. So Ezra goes back, he rebuilds the temple. About 13 years later, we come across the story of Nehemiah. It does no good to have a beautiful temple and wonderful homes. Which had not yet been completed. Because they were focusing on the temple. If you don't have a wall around the city. So as we read. What takes place is. Nehemiah is. Never been to Israel. Never been to Jerusalem. Never been to the temple. He was born in captivity. Lived in captivity, captivity in Persia. And as he's in this captivity. He hears news. Back home. Is tough. There is no city wall. There is no protection for God's people. They're worried. They're upset. And he takes this to heart. He becomes concerned about his homeland. And the rest of Nehemiah, at least through chapter 6, is telling this story of how God worked through Nehemiah to accomplish God's goodwill for the benefit of God's people. And ultimately, as a benefit for the entire world. So what can we take from this story? I think it's this. Like Nehemiah, you and I, God calls us to big, important jobs. Tasks, if you will. Dreams. Visions, even. God calls each and every one of us to something important to do. Not for ourselves, but for Him. And when God calls us to that, And we put ourselves to the work, we're going to find that there are some difficulties. But we also find that God is faithful. How can we go about that? I hope, first of all, that like Nehemiah, you do have some kind of burning passion to do something for God. You may not know what it is yet, but that God would spark something in you to do something for Him that you can't let go of. That you feel deep down inside, I must do X, Y, or Z for the Lord. And you may say, well, I don't have that. that. That's not my life. I'm focused on other things. Maybe God has you here today that you might turn your attention to Him. Because I bet if you do that, God will show you that in fact He does have something important, significant for you to do. That He is calling you to something of eternal significance. That he has given you a passion that maybe you just don't know is there yet. But he has placed it deep inside and he wants to bring it up. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, but when he heard the report, God spoke to his heart. So it begins here with his passion. We're going to go through uh, one, two, three, four, four ideas here that kind of help us think through how we can sense what God's calling us to do and accomplish it even as we go through challenges or opposition. Passion, prayer, partnership, and perseverance. If you're taking notes, that can help you kind of track with me. If you're not a note taker, that's cool. That's no problem. But if you are, it's passion, prayer, partnership, and perseverance. We start with passion, which I've already spoken a little bit about. What we see is that Nehemiah, when he hears about a need, he is troubled. Sometimes that's how God stirs our passion for something, is we see a need. We see heartache, we see trouble, and we feel deep down inside, I have to do something about that. It could be a problem to solve. Sometimes the passion God enlists in us is not necessarily a problem to be solved so much as it is something great that he wants you to do, an opportunity he wants you to seize, a calling that he has placed on your life. That can happen inside the church and ministry. You may be called to ministry. What a wonderful thing. That may happen just in your personal life. You feel this deep call, based on what you understand in Scripture, to raise children in reverence to the Lord that they may know Him and follow Him. What a, what a high calling. Maybe in your vocation. Maybe, maybe in your, your ministry in the life of the, of the church. For Nehemiah, he saw a great need for his people. And he wept. He was troubled and, dis, and distressed. And so he began to pray. And we read the prayer that he offered up. So this is the question for us. We see what broke Nehemiah's heart. What breaks your heart? What is God stirring you to do? You may think it's a small thing. You may think it's no big deal. But that's not true. If God is stirring your heart to act, if he's placed any amount of passion in you to do something for him, that's a big deal. And as we see what Nehemiah does in response to that, as he prays. That's the second one. first one is passion. The second one is prayer. He prays fervently, faithfully. He prays. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed. Now, here's what's interesting. Go over to verse uh, 11, and it says, again, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, who is this man? That's Nehemiah's boss, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is his cupbearer, which means he would take the king's wine. He would drink it to make sure there's no poison in it. And if there was no poison in it, he would take that cup and give it to the king. Now, I got to tell you, that's got to be the worst job, right? That's, that's either the best job in the world or the worst job in the world. There's really no middle in that, right? That seems pretty cushy. Seems pretty relaxed, seems like no big deal, but that one guy who gets sideways with the boss and you got to drink, what they put in that cup, that's trouble, right? So you had to be trustworthy, right? You had to be trusted by your boss. Nehemiah was very trusted. So Nehemiah knows that he has the trust of the king, but he knows that he's going to have to do some things that you don't normally do in his position, He's going to have to speak up. He's going to have to make it about him for a minute. Because it's always about the king. It's always about the king of Persia, Xerxes. It's We don't come into his presence sad, downcast. We don't come with requests. We don't ask for tickets to the show. You know, it's just not something you do. The king is the king. You're just simply a servant to do your job with a smile, and that's it. And so he knows he's going to have to do more than that. And so he begins to pray. Now, here's the thing. When we jump from chapter 1 to chapter 2, four months have passed. From the month of Kislev in the 20th year to chapter 2 in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. It's four months. He prayed for four months. Now, i got to tell you, sometimes I pray for something, and I'm like, God, it's been two days. What's the holdup? Right? I've been praying fervently for like minutes. For days. Why aren't you interceding? Sometimes it's going to be like that for us. Maybe more often than sometimes. Maybe a lot of times. Maybe God is wanting to create in us a desire for His will. That is not going to just come and go in a moment. But He wants to instill in us that passion for His will. And so He takes His time. I don't know for sure, but... Often that's what happens in my life. God wants to make sure, you know, this isn't just a fleeting thing where I just want something and they make it about me. After four months of fervently praying, anything like that would have already gone out the window. But not for Nehemiah because this was sent to him by God. And so he is sure, just as Nehemiah is sure, this is God's plan. So it takes four months. What happens in four months? In four months you read in chapter 2. Four months' time. He comes in. He can't hide it on his face that he's upset. The king says, what's wrong? And he explains, my people back home, the the walls are burned down. You know, they're in disgrace. And the king graciously sends him on his way to do the work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. That kind of gets you through most of chapter 2. He arrives in Jerusalem. He inspects the wall at night, walks around, sees the situation, knows the situation is pretty dire, knows the work that needs to be done, hasn't said anything to anybody yet. He's just observing. He's just looking. He's learning. He's trying to get the lay of the land. Remember, he had never been to Jerusalem before. So he's trying to get an understanding of the situation that he's just walked into after traveling for some several thousand miles to get to where he is. So he's in Jerusalem. He sees the situation with the walls. And then what does he do? Let me tell you what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do is get to work all by himself. He doesn't go over there and start gathering rocks and start putting them on top of each other all by himself. What he does is he gathers God's people together. He casts a vision. He says, this is what's necessary. And God's people were on board. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 with me. Then I, I would be Nehemiah, right? Then I, Nehemiah, Said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about how the gracious hand of my God had been, Amen, what the king had said. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Let me tell you something. If God gives you something to do, I guarantee you it's bigger than you can do. God has given you something to do, it's beyond you. Now this is good news and bad news. The bad news is, we would like to just go out there and get it done ourselves. I don't need nobody. Some of us have that kind of, you know, chip on the shoulder. I don't need nobody, right? Everything in the Bible tells you you're wrong, by the way. You do need people. You do need people. You need God, we're going to get to that, but you need people. If God has given you something to do, you cannot do that on your own. You need people. All of chapter 3 is about how God used a variety of people to accomplish His will. It began with a passion in one guy's heart, Nehemiah. He was moved to pray for intervention and God did open the door. And when he walked through that door, he knew, I can't walk through this door by myself. I have to partner with my brothers and sisters in faith to get this job done. Chapter 3, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you know how it is. You come across those chapters and you think, nah, keep moving. The long list, the genealogies, the he beget, she beget, all that kind of stuff. You know, sometimes you just kind of skip over. Chapter 3 is one of those chapters you're tempted to skip over. But let me tell you, you miss some stuff. What would you miss if you skipped over chapter 3? You would miss that Nehemiah was used by God to rally others. To do the will of God. And what is really interesting here. Is that those who are rebuilding the wall. They're working side by side. In fact when you read chapter 3. You will read next to. Next to. Next to. Next to. These folks are next to these folks. They're next to these folks. Accomplishing the work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now if you look a little bit closer. You're going to find that there are men and women rebuilding this wall. You're going to find that there are clergy. Priests. People of the Levitical tribe rebuilding the wall right next to those who were the laity, like the church members, both side by side, next to working to rebuild the wall. You'll find that there are people from different towns, different classes, different trades. You've got goldsmiths working next to those who make perfumes. You'll find that there are representatives from virtually everywhere. Every aspect of of social life working side by side next to one another to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. If God has given you a passion, you have prayed through that and you know that he's calling you to do it. And he is opening doors for you to do what he's called you to do. I want you to look around and say, God, who needs to accompany me in this journey? Or who is already going down this track that I need to get with them? I need to accompany them because God has given us the same direction. Who do you need to partner with in this? And perhaps God will open your eyes to see that there's some folks around you that do want to be a part of what God has called you to do. Or people around you that are already doing what God wants you to do. And now, because you've seen them, you can partner with them. Passion, prayer, partnership. And the last one that we'll spend more time on than the others, perseverance. Because this is the hard stuff. The beginning of any journey is exciting. It's fun, right? Last summer, our family took a three-week trip across the middle of the United States. And the start was fun. But when you're driving through South Dakota, there are some moments, y'all. We just think, we should have bought a plane ticket. This is a bad idea. This is a bad idea, right? The beginning of a journey can be exciting. The end can be exciting. The middle part can be challenging. It was no less that for Nehemiah. He had to persevere. See, when you get on God's agenda, when you're doing what God wants you to do, when you have the passion to do it, when you are backing that passion up with persevering prayer, when you look and partner with those around you that can actually help you accomplish what God's given you, guess who doesn't like that? God's enemy and ours. See, we have an enemy. A spiritual enemy, Satan. He doesn't want us to be on the same page with God. He doesn't want us trying to accomplish big things for Him. And so He will use whomever and whatever, however, whenever, to disrupt what God is trying to do. And that's exactly what happens with Nehemiah. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. This is a bit of foreshadowing of what is to come. You're introduced to Nehemiah's, what becomes his, in a sense, arch enemies. In verse 19 we read, But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, that he's rebuilding the walls, right? They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, so these are the words of Nehemiah, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start building. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. What do they they face first when being persecuted? What do they have to persevere through at this front end of the journey? Accusations. The first one is accusations. Now, How He responds can be instructive to us. Because here's the thing. Like when we go through this perseverance thing. When when we try to do something for God and the enemy attacks. What we're going to see here is there's a variety of tools in which God has given us to respond. And prayerfully, thoughtfully, asking God to give us wisdom. One of these tools, a few of these tools, maybe all of these tools. They need to be used at some point or another. And the first one is this. The first thing they do with the accusation... As Nehemiah says, listen, I'm following orders from God, not from you or anybody else. I'm following orders from God. You know what he could have said? He could have said, you know, I, we have a king, by the way, in Persia over all this stuff, you and me. And he said, I could be here. So step off. He could have said that. He could have said that, but he doesn't say that. That's interesting to me. He doesn't say, King Xerxes, here's, here's the letters he gave us. We're free to be here. No. What does he say? He says the God of heaven will give us success. You know, some of the accusations you're going to receive first when you try to step out and do something big for God, it's going to come from you. You'll be the first one to shoot it down. You'll be the first one to naysay. You'll be the first one to say, I can't. But if God has called you to it, if God has called you to it, can you say that? See, if you've already experienced the passion and you've gone through the long suffering of prayer after prayer after prayer, not for days, not for weeks, but maybe for months or years. When God has sparked that passion and you've gone through that season of prayer and you've got people around you who believe in the direction God is calling you to go. You can say to yourself and anyone else, no, 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 this is from God. God's called us to it. God will see us through it. He will bring success. What happens next are insults. I think this is where it gets interesting. Did you know there's trash talking in the Bible? There is. Some of you like to trash talk, don't you? On the field or on Facebook. Uh, yeah, it's not such a great trait, but let's be honest. It feels good sometimes. Let, let them know who, who's boss. His arch enemies do that. We get to see some of that. We get to see some of these insults in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and with the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? He insults them. Feeble. You're too weak for this. Will they restore their wall? They don't know how to do this. They can't carry this out. Will they offer sacrifices... Is this really about their silly little religion? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back from life? Back from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? The other enemy of Nehemiah speaks up, in verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, "Where are they? What what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it?" would break down their wall of stones. Small little fox would just climb on the wall and just shatter it. Come on, that's a pretty good insult. I mean, for back in the day, you know what I mean? I think that's, you know, that's like, those are fighting words. How will Nehemiah responds to these to these insults? Listen to what he does first. He says nothing to them first. What he does first is he turns his attention to the Lord. See, what happens when we are insulted for trying to do something for God, we may want to point our finger back on them. So you're not doing anything for God. You don't even know God. What's wrong with you? Or he might turn his attention on himself and say, well, I'm not that way. I can do this. I can accomplish this. They they don't know what I can do with this wall. They could turn and look at themselves. But that's not what Nehemiah does. He doesn't look at his enemy. He doesn't even look within. He looks up to God. And in verse 4, we read, As soon as the insults end, or maybe while they're going on, Nehemiah says a prayer. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. What I want to point out is that prayer is not just one point in the sermon. It's your life with God. This is the very heartbeat of everything that you do. Your prayers have to be formed and shaped by the truth of God's word. But the truth of God's word hits you and forms you through prayer. So it's not just something you've got to do along the way. It's something you do at every stop. And this is certainly true for Nehemiah. He turns and prays. Now, I'll be honest with you. uh, What he prays about his enemy, pretty harsh. Okay? He says... Turn their insults. This is verse 4 of chapter 4. Turn the insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, I'm not saying you should pray that about those who may oppose you, those who may insult you. But if you're, going to do any, if you're going to talk to anybody about it, you should talk to God about it in prayer. If you're going to go anywhere with those feelings that you have deep inside, the very best and safest place to go is to go to God in prayer. Let me also point out this is a different stage in redemptive history. We are now in the phase of Christ, Him crucified, Him resurrected. And He talks to us about how to treat enemies that supersedes this example. He says to love our enemies and pray for them but not this kind of praying for them, okay? This kind of praying for him, however, uh, I I think we do have to be honest with that. that Sometimes we need to get it out. We need to talk to God about it. But we need to come back around to what does forgiveness and love and blessing our enemies look like? Spill it out before God, but also respond to enemies as Christ has called us to and has given us the example. So what was his response? To the insults, the only thing he does... Is he prays. Sometimes the only thing you can do is pray. You want to attack those who are attacking you. You want to justify yourself in your own thoughts. Sometimes the very best thing to do is just pray. And only pray. He gives us that example in this section. But that doesn't stop him. That doesn't stop Nehemiah's enemies. It doesn't stop Nehemiah. Because we read in verse 6. So we built the wall till all of it had reached half its height. For the people... Worked with all their heart. He doesn't let the insults stop them. But neither does Sanballat. He doesn't let the fact that they continue working stop him. He moves from insults to threats. Chapter 4 verses uh, 7 through 23 point this out. He begins to threaten them. Physical harm. He scares them. He's, he's challenging them. But look at what happens in verse 14. After I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He says, don't forget what this is about. There there are going to be some challenges that feel threatening to you. God may ask you to take some steps that really just are scary. I think Nehemiah shows us what we do, what we are to do with that. Remind ourselves, remind those who are partnering with us to accomplish the will of God. This is worth it. This is worth it. The threats are real. The risk is real. The cost is real. But God's will is worth it. Don't forget what we're doing this for. When the threats don't work, Samballot tries distractions. He calls for Nehemiah to come down, come off the wall. This is chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He sends word to him, he says, come down off the wall. Come, meet with me. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages, Into verse 2. He does it four times, and every time, Nehemiah does not go. The distractions are coming to him. And he just pushes them off. Nope. I will not be distracted. What does he say? Verse 3. He sent a messenger with this message. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. There will be things that will distract you. That will try to distract you from what God has called you to do. Things that may look good or may look better. Things that may try to frighten you off. All sorts of kinds of distractions can come into our life. What do we to do with those? Don't let them distract you. Keep your eyes on the work ahead of you. In fact, this is another one of those things you see throughout Nehemiah. It doesn't matter if he's he's being accused or if he's being insulted or threatened or if there's an attempt to distract him. You know what he keeps doing? You know what God's people keep doing? They keep doing the work. What does God call me to do today? What does God call me to do today? In fact, I think that's one of the greatest questions we can ask ourselves. What is God calling us to do today? What does God want from me today? What is he inviting me into today? Distractions don't work. So his enemies try libel. See that in the middle of chapter 6 and verse 5. Verse 5 through 9. Ballot sends out a letter. He wants everybody to read it so he doesn't seal it. He wants everybody to know this lie that he's planning in their mind that, you know what Nehemiah is trying to do? He's trying to set himself up as king. And last I checked, we already have a king. Now, because this was public, Nehemiah felt he had to respond and he did. He said, you're just making this stuff up. Sometimes when libel is made public, sometimes you have to speak against that because it is now Public, And we see ne- Nehemiah had no problem doing that Last attempt by his enemy was to intimidate him It was to try to get him to fear from his life that So much that he would go and hide See that in chapter 6 verse 10 One day I went to the house of Shehemiah Son of Delilah, the son of Mattabel who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Now, what we're going to find out is that these guys were sent by Nehemiah's enemies. What is Nehemiah, what's his response? What, what does Nehemiah say? Nehemiah says, should a man like me run away? I love that. That's good stuff. Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life, I will not go. My feet are firmly planted. This is what God has for me to do. Do you have something like that? Do you feel that kind of passion about something? If not, would you ask God to show you? Because I bet it's there. I bet God has given you something important to do for him. Maybe you know what it is. Praise God. I hope that Nehemiah's example encourages you. If not, God wants you to know. Maybe there's just so many things that are blocking out what God has for you, and you just need to get focused on Him so that you can know what He's calling you to do. But when you know it, may you be able to say, like Nehemiah, Am I one to shrink back? Am I one to run and hide? If I know God has called me to this, if I know God has my back, we're moving forward. We're going to do the work. It's kind of an impressive thing that Nehemiah would do that. He would leave home. Remember, he grew up in captivity. He had never been to Jerusalem. He would leave home. The comfort and safety of home. He had a pretty cushy job. Yeah, sure, he may die one day because he drinks poison. But between now and then, it's going to be fine. It's going to be pretty easy. Sometimes we need to see An example that can push us to do what may seem risky, what may indeed be risky. Nehemiah is an example, but there's a better Nehemiah. There's an even better example than him. There's another who left the comforts of home to come into this world on a mission from God, to do the bidding of God at great cost to himself. Not just at the threat of death, but knowing that he would die. Who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus is a part of this story. His name may not be on the page, but it's a part of the redemptive story of God that God is bringing a remnant back to Judah. And from that remnant, one would be born to save not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. How would He save us? What was His mission that was so important that He could not stay in the comforts of heaven at home, but had to enter into the world knowing He would die? What would that mission be? It would be to give his life for us, to take the sins of the world on himself, to set us free from guilt and shame and fear, to to take away from us eternal death, to move our eternal position from hell to heaven, to, in the words of Jesus himself, to give us a full life. Jesus saw what God had called him to do. had such passion around He was known as a man of prayer. He partnered with 12, did he not? And he had perseverance from every side, even up to the moment of death on the cross. And yet he persevered for you and for me. And so what, what if he calls you to do something like for him? What if he calls you to do something like that for him? What a joy it would be to take on such a task for the glory of God. For the good of others, knowing we don't do it by ourselves, but God partners with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, how it encourages us. God, what a beautiful, beautiful story. What truth comes from it. God, and if I could pray anything, in addition to praying that we would all know then in Christ there is salvation and we would embrace that truth. And if we have already, that we live our lives on the foundation of that truth. If I could pray anything else in addition to that prayer, I would pray that we would know what do you have for us to do? Because I know there is such joy and fulfillment in following your will, even when there is great cost. There's such joy and fulfillment in following your will. Would you reveal to us what that is? If we don't know, would you show us? And give us the strength to walk towards that. We ask it this in the name of Jesus. Amen.